So our scripture reading for today, for our sermon text, is Psalm 127 and Psalm 128. We'll be looking at both of them together, and I will also read them both straight through. So let's again hear now the word of God for the people of God. Unless the Lord builds the house, they who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord keeps watch over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early and stay up late to eat the bread of anxiety, for he gives rest to his beloved. Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb are his reward. As arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They shall not be put to shame when they speak with their enemies at the gate. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You shall eat the fruit of your labor, the labor of your hands. You shall be blessed and it shall be well with you. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Behold, thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. The Lord bless you from Zion. May you see the prosperity of Jerusalem all the days of your life. May you see your children's children. Peace be upon Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. And now, O God, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, something that Pastor Larry has emphasized here at Florida Coast Church is that we want to be a growing church. I mean, every church wants that, but we especially want to be a growing church. And what we mean by that is it's fine to receive Christians from other churches. That happens. People move in and out. Sometimes there's dissatisfaction. And in right reasons and right ways, we're happy to receive uh, Christians and, and grow that way. But what we ultimately want, what Pastor Larry has ultimately said, is we want kingdom growth. That is, we want people from outside the kingdom, people who don't know Christ, to come to know Jesus Christ and be added to the kingdom, kingdom growth. But one of the things that uh, happens when you get real kingdom growth is that new Christians need to be discipled, and it's often messy. And one of the major places of discipleship is family life. That is, okay, I've come to Christ, how am I to live now as a Christian in my family? A huge component of all of our lives, of course, is living in families. And you know, it's interesting when you turn to the book of Acts and we look at the early church, the early growing church. And one of the things that you notice is that entire families are added to the kingdom. Now, you remember Cornelius's household is baptized and added to the church. Lydia's household, the Philippian jailer's household, Crispus's household, Stephanus's household. In fact, most of the baptisms we have in the New Testament are recorded as households, families. Families come to the church. So the immediate question that we have is, well, what happens when a family comes to church? What does it look like to be a family around Christ? Now, what does it look like for a family to enter church? How does God change a family that comes to Christ? And what does it look like? It's one reason why Paul and the other apostles address family members. They say, wives do this, husbands do this, children do this. This is how you live as uh, family members in Christ, and the New Testament has something to say about that. 
But it's also the case that when you look at the New Testament, there's not a lot to say about that. You can kind of find the places. But I think one of the reasons why the New Testament doesn't have tons about it is because there's another part of our Bible called the Old Testament, and it has a lot to say about family life, about family dynamics, and what it means to be a believing family in the Lord God and how we live together on that. So that's what we'll be looking at today. Larry has finished uh, the book of Exodus. As he said, he's in his usual conundrum about where we'll be doing next for our sermon series. But today we'll be looking at uh, the family. Psalm 127 and 128 have often been called the family psalms. They're right next to each other. It's sort of providential that they're back to back. Um, maybe we might say it's almost as if they're meant to be read together. I'm not sure, but at the very least, we can read them together. The Holy Spirit did cause these to be put together in this spot. So I think it's interesting, it's helpful uh, for us to read them together. They certainly have similar ideas, and they kind of, uh, again, read really well right next to each other. And it gives us a vision here at Family at Florida Coast about what we can do with our families in serving Christ, serving Christ with our families. And if you're looking at the outline there, uh, you can see about that there's a fairly straightforward flow to both of these psalms. Uh, ultimately, these psalms are about blessing. What does it mean to be blessed by God in our families, particularly? Psalm 127 actually ends with a, a blessing, blessed. And then that's actually right where Psalm 128 picks up. That's why a number of people say these psalms seem like they're kind of meant to be read right together. Uh, we've got repeated words in both of the psalms as you're looking at their house, labor, eating, fruit, children, all these similar ideas together. But I think blessing is the central theme. And we're asking again, what does it look like to receive God's blessing? And what's highlighted really is this idea of a blessed house, a fruitful, functioning, flourishing, happy family and all centered around fearing the Lord and walking in his ways. I thought about titling this Straight Arrows and Fruitful Plants, but this is our idea. Blessed house before the Lord. Well, look, turn as we turn to verse 1 then of Psalm 127, we get kind of the setup uh, for these two psalms together. And the setup is a warning, actually. The opening lines give us the great need we have for God's blessing. Just in case you wondered if we need God's blessing, it says, yes, yes, you need God's blessing. In fact, there's nothing more that you need than God's blessing. And it's there in that word, unless. Unless the Lord does the work, everything's in vain. It's useless. Nothing advances. You can uh, hear Ecclesiastes. This is attributed to Solomon. So this whole idea, things just go round and round and nothing moves forward. Unless the Lord gives the blessing, the amount of effort, the amount of planning that human beings often do in their work and their life is immense. We plan, we put things together, but the psalm says everything is dependent on God and his blessing. Verse two continues uh, that repetition of the word vain, and it's focused not just on the work uh, or the planning, but especially long hours that can be put into human work. It's in vain for you to rise up early and stay up late to eat the bread of anxiety. Now, notice what's not uh, being said here, by the way, for those who are the night owls around us, is it's not itself a sin to get up early, to go to bed late. Uh, that itself isn't the vanity. What, notice what's being said here. It's in vain when you toil early and late. What? For what? 
to eat the bread of anxiety. That's really the best kind of translation here, the bread of sorrows, the bread of trouble and pain. And it's all a purpose clause. It's a way of saying, if you're getting up early and you're staying up late and the end result is you're eating pain and trouble and sorrow, you're not really getting anywhere, are you? And we'll see from other parts of this passage, you know, hard work itself isn't a vanity, uh, but it is a vanity when all your fruit and your labor just add more anxiety to your life. And probably many of us have experienced what that really can be like. You can actually, on the extreme, you can think of a figure like an Ebenezer Scrooge uh, who works long hours uh, but doesn't find any satisfaction in his work. There's no joy. There's no satisfaction in what he's done. And there's a contrast we'll get to in a second of, of the person who really can put aside their work, who can put aside all their labors and trust God for the satisfaction, trust God for the completion. Uh, somebody who isn't consumed by their own efforts. But one of the things we need to see in this opening part is the context and the need, that kind of context of the need for God's blessing. I think we can see the idea of work and labor uh, easily enough. Uh, but where is all of this work and labor being expended? And really the idea is it's a social context, actually. It's not so much the physical exertion that you know your, your muscles are really tired at night. That's not what's being emphasized. What's being emphasized is this kind of social context of laboring for a people, laboring for others, laboring in society. Now, there is actually a Hebrew word for house that's a dwelling place, a home, a kind of physical building, you might say. Uh, but that's not what's being emphasized here. What's being emphasized here is the word for household. The idea of household, a family. Uh, building a house in the Old Testament is often a phrase that refers to establishing and growing and developing a family. Uh, I don't know if you remember earlier in our Exodus series, this is kind of all the way back 40 chapters ago, when you remember the, the midwives, the Hebrew midwives who defy the king, and one of the ways that uh, happens on the other end of that is it says the Lord blessed them. If you remember, well, how did the Lord bless them? It says he built their house. It's the same phrase here. Well, what does that mean? It means uh, probably the Lord granted a family to them, a growing family, a flourishing family to these Hebrew midwives who had the courage to defy the Pharaoh. The Lord gave them a family, a family context. Or you might remember the story of King David. Um, who wanted to build God a house. So what is that? Well, he wanted to build God a temple. Uh, but the Lord appears to David and says, well, actually, I'm going to build you a house, David. And it's not talking about a physical house and palace, although there's that as well. But it says the house and the family line of David. So the Lord says, I'm going to bless your family line, generations and generations, that I'm going to be with you and I'm promising this family blessing on you. Same phrase here. So that's what we're looking at when we see this idea of building a house here in the beginning. The place where we need God's blessing in this psalm, uh, where any action we do is useless unless God himself is in it, is in growing and leading and strengthening our families. It's the same with the other action as well, by the way, guarding a city. Well, what's a city? A city is a community. What's well, a community? Well, it's a group of families together. So the psalmist is saying here at the beginning, unless the Lord's in all of this, it's going to fail. Uh, one is building, by the way. So if you're trying to build a family, that's kind of the positive image. I want to grow the family. But the other image here as well is kind of a defensive image. 
That is, you need to protect what you've built, don't you? So the watchman stays up making sure this city that's been built up of families is going to remain, is going to be preserved. And the psalmist says, hey, unless the Lord's in that, that's not going to work either. You can't build a family. You can't protect a family unless God is in it, unless he's giving his blessing. I think the understanding understanding this context really is important because um, otherwise, when we get later in this psalm to the switch to children, uh, a number of people are like, that kind of seemed out of the blue. I mean, I thought we were building a house. I thought we were guarding a city. Well, no, it's all about family, social life. Why did we start talking about children? Really, in a sense, it's there in the first verse. We're talking about a family heritage. We're talking about a household. And the key thing we need to learn is that we desperately need the Lord to be the builder of our households. We need his grace. We need his blessing alongside of all the work that we might do. And at least one reason for that is, by the way, beloved, we're at war. That's the other context of this beginning. Apparently, there are enemies about who want to tear down whatever is being built. On the one hand, there's a sense of we're building. But on the other hand, we've got to defend about others who want to tear it down. And we need the Lord to be the one who keeps watch, who oversees the defense. But there's one more little hint that this opening line uh, gives us in setting up the context of this passage, of the, this dilemma, uh, which needs a resolution. Uh, we've seen how children in verse 3 uh, are not a switch to a different topic. Uh, but what about the man in verse 5? So we're kind of moving from house, city, children, blessed is the man. Well, let's think back to the very beginning of Scripture for a second to kind of get a little context on this. Think back to Adam and Adam's first calling and what happens. You know, Adam is told to take dominion. And in particular, he's given a twin command to work and to keep. Those are the phrases that are used. He's given the Garden of Eden as the first setting of where he's to take dominion. And he's told to work and to keep. And that's actually the very concept we've got here as well. Uh, working to build up a house and then keeping it. That is, guarding it. Same idea, same themes here. Uh, and what's cursed by God uh, when Adam fails to do all of this? Well, Adam is cursed to toil. By the sweat of your face, you will eat, remember, bread. By the sweat of your face, you're going to toil in pain and in toil, you shall eat of it all of the days of your life. That's the curse from the very beginning. So do you see it here in the beginning of our psalm? In other words, the first verses of this passage are telling us what it's like to live in a fallen world. It's reminding us of Adam's curse. You're told to work and to keep. But one of the things we can't do very well is work and keep. There's pain. There's suffering. There's toil. There's anxiety. In fact, that same Genesis passage at the curse tells us about a war that's going to go on as well. Remember that? Enmity I will put between you and the serpent. Conflict between your seed, your offspring, the offspring of the woman and the offspring of the serpent. In other words, there's kind of this intergenerational war that's going to go on between families, between your seed and their seed. And that's what's going to go on. That's the conflict in the background of this psalm. But even Genesis 3 speaks to this reality in a kind of stark way. Raising a family is cursed as well. 
Adam is cursed in his area of vocation. So Adam was given the field to work, to till, to bring up the soil. But Eve as well is given a curse. And what was Eve's curse? I will multiply your pain, your toil, in childbearing. And by the way, that's childbearing, childrearing. Yes, the act of giving birth to children is very painful, but I think as the moms could give me an amen, it doesn't just end there. Raising up children is very difficult. In fact, you might say the real labor starts on the other side of that, and you've got quite a while ahead of you to do more labor. In other words, it's not just Adam who's going to have to contend with thorns and thistles. Remember, Adam is going to have to deal with the thorns and thistles of the ground. There's a sense in which Eve as well is going to have to deal with some thorns and thistles. There's going to have to be some tilling of the soil. Raising up children in this fallen world is a kind of parallel to working hard ground. It resists you, doesn't it? It resists your cultivation. It produces weeds and brambles. No wonder we need God's blessing. Because we live in a world with a curse. The family is that first location of that curse. But it's also our families where we are so supposed to resist the serpent. To have victory over him. Where the Lord comes to meet us in that. Uh, by the curse, our own families, though, end up, in a sense, you might say, on the wrong sides of things. I'm trying to set up for you the problem in this, isn't it? That's a problem. All of this is difficult. So the rest of the passage is going to go on to give us the solution. If things are so difficult, and if there's so much anxiety in raising up a family for the Lord, how are we going to do it? Well, the answer that's good news is the Lord gives blessing. In the midst of curse, the Lord makes promises as well. A promise of undoing the curse in the very place where the curse first met us, which is in our families. The second half of verse uh, 2 gives us that first glimmer of hope. So we're going to get lots of hope now in the rest of our passage. Now the vanity of this world, the frustration of this world causes anxiety. But what does the Lord do? He gives rest to his beloved. Well, the first point is the Lord has a beloved. That's good news. The Lord loves. He loves a people. And in fact, that people are his bride. The word beloved as that sense of bride, the one who, um, who, who receives the love of a husband. That's good news. Uh, the Lord himself has a family. Despite our fallenness, despite our curse, the Lord really does redeem sinners into his family. And the Lord gives rest to an anxious people and an anxious world. By the way, the idea here is not just sleep. Um, it's not just when you hit the snooze button that's the, the Lord giving you beloved rest. Well, that may be a bit, but it's more about a sense of rest as calmness. The Lord gives a kind of sureness, a trust amidst the anxiety of the world. In other words, faith itself, faith in the Lord in this anxious world is itself a gift from God. But it's the next verse that may seem like the strangest gift, the solution of all of these problems listed in the opening verses Behold, children are a heritage of the Lord. The fruit of the womb are his reward. Now stop for a second and see a funny irony in this. So we're striving against anxiety and frustration in this kind of war of a cursed world. And what does the Lord give us? He gives us kids. Okay. Martin Luther writes of this psalm that the Lord gives us an unlikely weapon in this earthly struggle. Unlikely indeed. I've often thought it's funny 
that the psalm goes from, you know, you stay up late, you get up early, that's bad, the Lord gives you sleep and children. Now, wait a second. Um, nothing steals my sleep more than my children. So I'm trying to get how these gifts work together of sleep and children. It was uh, Ben Franklin, I think it was, who says the, the only consolation of natural providence is that children need more sleep than their parents. Uh, that's good. I've got to trust God's word on this. But the overall point is that children, of course, are a gift of God. And by the way, what we're not talking about is a sort of generic gift either. Uh, what's being said here is not just that God opens and closes the womb, although he does, and that is a deep biblical truth. It's not just the generic point that children are nice because if you're lonely or you want to carry on the family name, those things are true. See, when it says that children are a heritage of the Lord, it's not just saying a heritage from the Lord. That, I know some translations say that. It's really just the Lord's heritage. Children are the Lord's. They are his children. They belong to him. Did you know that we're all adoptive parents, you might say? Because we're raising children to God, their heavenly father. We're talking about people here who are in the beloved. As God includes redeemed sinners in his family by grace, so the Lord counts our children as well. Not by nature, by the way. No, no, not at all. By grace, by the Lord's promise, as a gift. The word here for reward can simply mean gift as well. Again, they're God's gift. I don't think anyone would accuse uh, John Calvin of not emphasizing sin enough. Uh, famously known for a, a deep doctrine of original sin, total depravity. It affects all of us, all of our being. Uh, yes, even our children as well. But it's actually Calvin uh, who said that because the promise is for us and for our children... That's the key biblical phrase. It promises for you and for your children to be a God to you and to your seed after you. Calvin writes this, So God extends our own adoption to our children as well, that they too might be counted holy and not strangers to his covenant of grace. Calvin points out in this passage, you know, what kind of reward it would be if children were only a gift and reward simply to populate hell. Is that a reward? Is that a just earthly reward? Well, it's nice to have other people around you so you're not lonely. Calvin points out that Israel is called the Lord's heritage, his inheritance. And so our children are called this as well. Not because they're innocent. No, uh, just as we are not innocent. Uh, by nature, flesh produces flesh. But by God's promise, Scripture says our children are counted as holy. You can see why Reformed Christians like our church here, uh, like Luther and Calvin and onward, had had a teaching both of original sin. Yes, our children are in deep uh, need of grace and they are sinful, but also why they included infants from their earliest days as members of the church. That's why we baptize infants here. That's God's grace, his promise. That's grace enough, we might say, that our children are actually counted on this side of things and the great war. But this passage also wants to show us that children are an asset in this war. I mean, it might be, again, good enough to simply say they're not on the other side. Good. We're going to count them with us. But no, the psalm says they're a great weapon in this war, by the way. That might be even harder for us to believe than they're going to be a gift for us along with our sleep. We might remember the words of Psalm 8. You remember Psalm 8? 
out of the mouths of babies and infants, God has established strength against his foes. Out of the mouths of what? Infants and babies. To silence his enemy and avenger. God's chosen the small things of the world, the foolish things of the world. And here they're arrows. The kids are arrows. Verse 4 calls them children of youth, which is kind of ambiguous. It could be children of a man's youth, meaning when he's young. But actually, it's probably more likely simply referring to their own youth. In other words, it's not just that kids get to be arrows when they're old and they're strong. No, he's saying even when they're young, they're arrows. Our young children are arrows. Well, beloved, what do you do with arrows? You don't just kind of stick them around and hold on to them. No, you shoot them out. You fire them out into the world. These verses, by the way, give us such a great picture of Christian parenting. As you wrestle, particularly parents, of how do I raise my kids? It's very different, in fact, than even the view amongst certain Christian circles that we hold on to our children, that therefore primarily our benefit. No, what the psalm is saying is, that the gift and even task of Christian parenting is, yes, we nurture them. Yes, we include them. Yes, we include a safe space with them. But eventually, it's all to launch them out into the world against the enemy. They're part of God's mission. So I give you these kids so that we can send them out into the world and that they can make a difference. They're God's heritage, after all, not your heritage, ultimately. Verse 5 has an ambiguity that might be translated differently in your versions. On the one hand, it might be, he will not be put to shame when he contends with his enemies at the gate. Uh, speaking about the father of the children, in other words, because of his children, uh, the father doesn't have to be ashamed, and that's true. But actually, more likely, this is referring to the children themselves. That is, when believing parents ready their arrows, they sharpen them, make sure they're straight, you've got to get straight arrows. Otherwise, your arrows are going to do all kinds of things. It won't be for shame when we send them out. That they'll engage in that same spiritual mission that the Lord has given to us. The Lord's going to pass on that work to the next generation. I want to skip down to verse 2 of Psalm 128 as we think about this. I want to come back to verse 1 really as kind of the center and heart of the passage. But notice with me that all the frustrations that we kind of open today with are all getting reversed in these following verses. Instead of eating the bread of anxiety, the bread of sorrow, the bread of toil and problems, what's happening? Well, with God's blessing, you eat the fruit of your own labor. Lots of fruit imagery now. Do you notice that? Garden of, uh, Garden of Eden type imagery. Remember what Adam is cursed with? He has to leave that beautiful garden sanctuary. And it's kind of like the psalmist is saying, with God's promise and with his blessing, there's a sense in which he gives you a bit back of what Eden is like. It's not in vain. It's productive. You enjoy the fruit of your labor. God's blessings aren't only on the table, uh, but they're around your table again. Uh, from field harvest to family harvest. So a blessed man who fears the Lord has a wife and children who are like vine and olive shoots in the home. Uh, the house is being built up. And it, again, it looks almost like a kind of garden house, doesn't it? feel kind of nice. I didn't even mention the husband-wife strife earlier as part of the curse. Of course, that's one of the first ways that the curse of sin hits us. But here, this is being overturned as well. A fruitful vine is your wife. And it's not just, by the way, speaking about fruitful in the sense that your wife bears your kids for you. That's part of it. But there's much, much more. Vine here isn't just any old vine. It's a grapevine. 
And of course, what does a grapevine make? A grapevine makes a vineyard. And almost everywhere in scripture, this is connected to wine, to joy, to celebration, to abundance, to flourishing. What does the psalmist say in another place? God gives the fruit of the vine to gladden the heart of man. See, fruitful is to increase what is there. A fruitful vine is your wife. The wife is the glory of the husband, Paul says. Proverbs 12, 4 says that an excellent wife is the crown of her husband. We might immediately think of a Proverbs 31 woman who increases her husband's prosperity, it says. Who's the praise of her husband? Her own works are praised at the city gate. She himself, she herself is known at the city gate. But the word here, too, that she is a fruitful vine within the house is actually the term she's a fruitful vine sort of flanking the house. It's kind of funny. It's almost like she's a vine pillar of this house. So she's a buttress to this household. You know, Paul says that the women are to be busy about the household keepers of the home. So we might say the term homemaker that we use is fitting then. Why? Because they make the home. A fruitful, a believing wife forms the home into a place of joy and well-being. Even as she looks to the true home builder. Well, who's the true home builder? Unless the Lord builds the house. But she's a homemaker as well. She's forming and, and giving a place for children and husband and all of the whole family to have joy and fellowship together. Again, children are mentioned. Uh, olive shoots, by the way, is not just a picture of vitality, of growth. You know, kids are growing lots. Well, that's true. But over and over again, the olive in Scripture is a picture of holiness, of covenant, uh, covenant grace in the Old Testament. It's going to walk you through that. At Noah's flood, what's the, what is it that's the sign of peace, that the flood of destruction is over? Well, it's an olive branch. Olive oil is actually called the holy oil of anointing in the Old Testament. Anointing priests, kings, and prophets. Uh, olive wood is sort of the special wood that has a place in the holy of holies, in the tabernacle and temple. Uh, the temple itself is, is pictured, it says, as an olive grove, a grove of olive shoots and branches about. So it's like you're going into the Garden of Eden. There's actually an old Jewish tradition that the, the tree of life was an olive tree. Possibly, but certainly scripture gives us a sense that olive branches, olive trees are a picture of God's people, his covenant people, even to this day in modern Israel. Olives, olive tree. So when the psalmist says your children are like olive shoots, he's not like, hey, they're rambunctious around you, growing everywhere about. He's saying they're holy people. Count them as God's covenant people and their covenant children. All of this should factor into how we regard our children. As olive plants, almost like around the family holy of holies. What's the family holy of holies? What's the dinner table? It's a place where we gather together, fellowship together. Covenant children are like olive plants. So by the way, what does that make parents? Parents are gardeners. Again, gift and task. We've been given a plant, but you've got to deal with that particular plant. You've got to care for it. Yes, it includes pruning and nurturing plants. The home is like a greenhouse. You've got to deal with this plant and make them mature, fruit-bearing trees. The family culture is to be a culture of joy and fellowship. You know, fathers are to make sure that they're equipped to strengthening their children for battle, you might say. Arrows and plants. And so that they're not ashamed. Uh, parents, are to, uh, parents are to make their children like sharp arrows. Sharpen your kids. Aim them right at the heart of the enemy so when they're ready, you shoot them out. 
but you also should nurture them, fertilize that soil that God has given them as holy olive plants in the garden of this home so they bear fruit for the Lord, not just for yourselves. So often as parents, we can sort of want our kids to do things for us, but it's ultimately for the Lord. Another psalm gives us a gendered blessing. I love this one, similar to our psalm here. It says, may your sons be like plants fully grown and may your daughters be sculpted pillars fit for a palace. Good picture for sons and daughters. Yes, we are different as men and women. Your son's a fully grown plant or tree. Your daughter's a sculpted pillars, fit grace for a palace. This is the contrast. All of this in this opening picture of a man who's working late, uh, who's toiling and if they anxious. And now we have a man who's around the table of joy and hope. By the way, what does that mean? The man makes it for dinner. I thought that's interesting. Uh, the beginning man is working up late. Eating the bread of anxiety, but this man makes it home for the dinner table, for joy, for celebration, for blessing. A father blesses his children and his family. We can think of another proverb here. Better is a meal of herbs where there is love than a fattened calf with hatred and strife. But our psalm doesn't just end with the picture of a family. The blessing moves out, and it actually moves out to city and nation. So we get the prosperity of Jerusalem. That you see not only your family's prosperity, but the prosperity of Jerusalem. The peace of Israel. Jerusalem's the city. Israel is the larger nation. What is this a picture of us, of this in the Bible? Well, is that when families have a strong grace and blessing about them, that spills out, beloved. It spills out into a communities of grace. You know, we often hear phrases like, it takes a village. To raise a family, and there's some truth to that. But it's also the case that it takes a family to make a village. And you got to have strong, well-grounded families to do this. We want to bless our cities here at Florida Coast. We want our city to be blessed. We want our nation to be blessed by God. So it's right that we start with the family. We want to see families mended, restored, reconciled. You know, the very last promise of the Old Testament, you might remember, is that in this coming new covenant, what would the Lord do? He would turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. But to narrow, narrow this down again, let me point two things from this passage. Where does all this blessing come from? Of course, it comes from the Lord unless the Lord does this. But notice in particular, the Lord grants his blessing where? From Zion. What's Zion? Well, Zion's not just Jerusalem. It's the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. It's the temple. What is that a picture of for us today? It's the church. It's the sanctuary. Where are you going to get this blessing for your family to be well-grounded in grace? You've got to bring your family to the church. I've often seen signs, maybe you have as well, of churches that say that this is a family-centered church. And on the one hand, there's something true about that. In other words, families are welcome, whole families, that's good. But you know, I've often wondered if we should have a sign that says this, we want church-centered families. In other words, we want families that find their blessing, their fellowship outside of themselves in the gathering of God's church, Zion. That's the family where we get the blessing for our individual families. That's where God's blessing is. The Lord blesses you from Zion. But to narrow it down even further, verse 1 of Psalm 128 is the center of this passage, and it really says it all. Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. You know, this whole passage is about blessed is the man, your wife will be like this, your children will be like this. But it's kind of like the very center of this passage. It says, don't think you're excluded from any of this. If you don't have a family, where are you in your family? Blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, 
Most of uh, both of these psalms picture these things from the point of view of the husband, of the father. By the way, I think that should tell us something. The role that godly men play in the home and the society, as it said, that the father goes, so goes society. But this one verse, in a sense, universalizes all of it. Everyone who fears the Lord is blessed, no matter where you are, no matter who you are. By the way, I understand a message like this can be very difficult for some of you. Uh, for some, this message may seem very irrelevant. Uh, you might say, I don't have a family right now. My family has grown up and gone. Uh, for some, it's even worse than irrelevant. It might be painful, either because you've had a painful family life in the past, or family life right now is presently painful. And I get it. I understand that. Let me address first the first kind of question or response. How is this relevant for you who may not have a family about you right now? Well, on the one hand, it might be relevant for what will still come. We never know. But more importantly, it's relevant because you are part of a larger family of God, the church. And everything that's said here of our kind of individual families should be true in a sense of the larger family of God. So when some of you ask Pastor Larry or ask me, how do I help out in this church? Well, one of the ways you can help out is helping other families, men discipling men. You may not have a family right now, but can you disciple another man as he has his family? Women discipling other women, helping with the children of the church. Remember, you guys took a vow when your kids were baptized, when kids were baptized in this church, that you are going to help Christian parents raise their kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Those kids out there are all of our responsibility. The psalm helps remind also us what we're aiming for, both in our individual families, again, in a picture of our larger family church life, what we're shooting for. But what about those for whom reading this psalm just simply makes your heart ache? And I know that. My solace to you is that everyone falls short of this. Everyone falls short of this. By the way, if Solomon really wrote this, did Solomon have a really great family life? That was incredibly messed up. Messed up family life. It's said that we only truly learn to parent by the time our kids are out of the house. That's probably true. The psalm isn't meant to condemn us. It's meant to cause us to trust God's grace. Yes, it probably does remind us that we all fall short. But getting this picture of God's blessing should never make us... Um, on the one hand, think, I can do this on my own, or I could never do this. See, there's the one sense of, like, I can do this, I can do it by works. Or the other who says, I can never do this, I'm not even going to try. Ironically, both of these kind of responses are trying to build a home by works. You're trying to do it on your own. You know, beloved, we aren't saved as Christians by our works. Neither should we try to parent by our works or have a marriage by our works. We live by faith, so keep your marriages by faith. Keep your parent, your children by faith. Parent by faith, by grace. We stand on God's promises, not on our own efforts. That's what this whole passage is all about. And the blessings of God are promised to those who receive them by faith. I receive this, Lord, and I'm going to walk in it. I'm going to trust you even as I try to do this thing. That's what all of this is is saying you shouldn't live by anxious toil, but the Lord gives us rest. That's trust. I'm going to rest in this. I'm going to go to sleep knowing I haven't done a great job of this today, but I'm going to trust God, fearing God to walk in his ways. And by the way, by the way, that doesn't mean that there's not effort involved either. Trust doesn't mean, oh, good, I'll sit back and God will do all of this. You know, the same John Calvin, uh, who wrote so much about predestination, God's sovereignty, his determined plan, said this about this psalm. I love this quote. 
He says, it's not the will of the Lord that we should be blocks of wood or that we should keep our, our arms folded without doing anything. We should be busy about God's will, even while knowing that it's all dependent on God's blessing. And I love this phrase. He says, our hands are not to be idle, but our hearts are to be still in faith, resting only in him. Make your hands not idle. He says, trust God ultimately for the blessing. To come back to what I started this sermon with. It's our desire that here at Florida Coast that we receive new people, new families, and that we help them disciple as well. But this takes grace, and it's a process. You know, our New Testament reading I chose today acknowledges even in the early church there were split marriages. In other words, a wife came to faith and a husband didn't. And if you go back, you can read those words about how a wife is to seek to win an unbelieving husband without a word, by a gentle and quiet spirit. How should husbands, they should live with your wife, perhaps even an unbelieving wife, in a gentle way, showing honor to them, knowing that they are the weaker vessel. Ultimately, we trust God for our families, just as we trust God for everything. We stand on his promises by faith. May this be true of us at Florida Coast, that we help one another and seek the Lord's blessing from Zion. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you are a covenant God who makes promises to us and to our children. We praise you, O God, that in Christ Jesus, your Son, you have kept covenant and you have renewed it for us, your people now. So cause us, O Father, to say that as for us, for us in our house, we will serve the Lord. By your Spirit, give us faith to trust you with all our hearts so that we might walk in your way. And see your blessing go forth from Zion. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.